go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Tom Charpentier, EA Government Relations Director and one of your hosts. At the other table, across the way. I'm Chris Henry, the Museum Programs uh, Representative here. And uh, Tom, we have uh, uh, two really honored guests. We're we're just thrilled to have them here. Um, Across from us on our left, we have Ken Jungeberg. And uh, just right next to him is Esther Abbey. How are you guys doing today? We're great. Oh, good, thanks. Awesome. And Esther, uh, your position is with Air Corps. And what is your exact position? So at Air Corps Aviation, I'm sort of our, I like to call myself a technical librarian. Um, I manage sort of the acquisition and digitization of all of the technical resources that we use to restore the airplanes that we work on. So engineering drawings and technical manuals mainly. And if anybody is unfamiliar uh, that's listening with uh, Air Corps Aviation, the work that you you guys are putting out, I mean, the restorations have, uh, I'm going to sound like a commercial for you guys here for a minute, <laughs> but really, uh, I think it has really set the bar uh, in the Warbird uh, movement and in the museum movement. I mean, there's a, a project you were working on in uh, national level museums as well. So um, you guys are just doing amazing work out there. Thank you. We, we try our best. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at your website the other day and the uh, yeah the number of, of Warbird restoration awards, especially from uh, Oshkosh, is, uh, is, is pretty lengthy <laughs> uh, from, from your recent work. Yeah, yeah, it's... We're honored. I mean, we do the best that we can, and we're always excited that uh, people appreciate the work that we do and the level of detail that we go to. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, so if, if, if you're an air venture goer and you're listening and you go down to the Warbirds area and you've seen airplanes like Lopes Hope, for example, uh, that is uh, one of their aircraft. Uh, the list can go on, but that is one that uh, certainly has been here recently. Uh, one of my personal favorites. Yeah. Mine too. Oh, yeah, yeah that Razorback P fifty one. Yeah, with the yeah. black tail. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic. Then y'all did a sister ship to that aircraft. Right, Miss Kitty three, um, which is a D model Mustang, um, and that one was a shorter project, but also was painted in a matching black tail scheme to Lopes Hope. Oh, it's awesome. Like I said, the, 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 the level of restoration that you guys are putting out, it, it really looks like something that's rolling off the factory floor in 1945. And that's exactly our goal. Yeah, factory fresh is usually um, the standard that we hold ourselves to. Um, so doing everything exactly the way that it would have been done in the factory during wartime. That's fantastic. Fantastic. And it's really preserving a lost art form in some ways. I mean, I see some of the work that's going in when you look at the how the metal uh, etching is done on the cowlings of the Mustangs and stuff like that. It's super neat. Yeah, yeah. Taking it to that very... My favorite example of that is uh, when we buy our modern sheet metal, we clean off all of the factory markings that it gets stamped with currently, and we re-stamp it with the factory markings that it would have come <laughs> out of the factory in World War II looking like, even though... Most people will never see that, and it gets painted over. It's hidden inside the airplane. We know, and our customers know, that if you were to find it, it would look exactly like Reynolds stamped it back during World War II. So I'm only chuckling because that's just uh, that that's that's an absurd level of detail. But 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 <laughs> but, but but it matters so much to uh, you know to anybody who's you know who's investing that heavily into a uh, you know into in, into a restoration of that quality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's it's very fun to get that detailed and to take it to that level. 
That's really awesome. My uh, my Pittsburgh uh, steelworker ancestors, uh, thank you. They're, they're, they're excited for that. So, um, well, one of the reasons we're here to talk about, uh, obviously, is the beautiful restoration you all do. But um, something I think equally as important is the wonderful things you're doing with the library there. Um, and with drawings and data there, can you tell us a little bit about your work in the Air Corps Library? Right, so um, Air Corps Library is one of the probably six different arms of the Air Corps aviation business. Obviously, restoration is our main bread and butter, but um, the library is essentially a website uh, that grew out of our need to organize the technical information that we used for our projects. And the original idea behind it was that we would just sort of use it internally um, as a way for the guys on the shop floor to quickly access the drawings and the manuals that they needed to answer questions. And then we eventually decided to make it public um, because we identified the need of other restoration shops to have quick and easy access to this information and also to make it available for general aviation enthusiasts um, and anybody else who was just interested in learning more um, of the technical details behind um, warbirds. And so the website has really grown almost exponentially. So we made it live in 2015, at the end of 2015. Um, and we had information for a handful of warbirds at that time. And now we've got full sets of engineering drawings for almost 45, 50 different warbirds. So the site's got a well, I think it's around 480,000 engineering drawings and almost 10,000 uh, technical manuals, all for specifically World War II era aircraft. Um, and the majority of it is just available to the public. Anybody can sign up and access it. So my role is to source that information and digitize it and then get it uploaded to the website and make it available for everybody to use. That's fantastic. I mean, and that's 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 vital. Without that information, uh, again, uh, it makes restoration harder. It makes restoration more of a guesswork. Uh, trying to yep. think of what a part or uh, where something might be. Uh, I mean, it it, it the it validates. You know, when you when you see Lopes Hope or or an aircraft like that and restored to that level. Yeah, a lot of it is done because these drawings are still out there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, without the original engineering data, you're essentially reverse engineering existing parts, which is much more time consuming and expensive. So it really cuts down on the time um, that we spend on a restoration and also allows us to know that we're doing a restoration at 100% accuracy because we're using the original factory data. And Esther, what was the background that brought you to this um, to this role you're, you're in right now? <laughs> <laughs> so I do not have any aviation background. Um, I have a museum, and uh, my background and my degree is in art conservation. And I just met uh, a couple of the owners of Air Corps, Eric Hokuff and Eric Trueblood, at a local sort of young entrepreneurs meetup in Bemidji, Minnesota, which is where Air Corps is located. And we kind of got to talking, and I thought what they were doing was really neat, and then just kind of went in there and asked them for a job, honestly. <laughs> um, Bemidji's not a very big town, especially for someone with a museum and art conservation background, and I thought I could use my degree in some way uh, by working there, and that's kind of how it got started. And I think it was an asset to me to not have an aviation background when I came in. Um, I got to learn really a lot about 
the document organizational system that the military had in place during World War II, part numbering systems that manufacturers had during the war. Um, and I think coming in with the aviation background might have colored or kind of informed my decisions in an, a different way, but being a sort of babe in the woods, aviation speaking, I was able to just learn about these systems um, and utilize them to keep our data organized and kind of trust that that system was the way to go without having any preconceived notions. So it was a kind of a random happenstance that I came into it. But honestly, well, like most people who get into warbirds, I can't imagine doing anything else at this point. <laughs> Once you get in, you don't really get out. <laughs> it gets in your blood. It does. Yeah. It does. Well, and, and you talking about that, I mean, you can see a, I see a lot of parallels to the, to the um, warbird restoration and museum community, too. I mean, you know, what do you preserve? What do you restore? Um, you know, how do you present a certain artifact? Uh, there, there's, I mean, there, there's, there's a ton of crossover there, I would imagine. There is. And the, one of the great things for me that I love about about my position is having come from museums, I love the fact that the information that we're preserving is getting used for its intended purpose. Um, people aren't writing their dissertation, you know, in a moldy archive somewhere. Like we're actually building airplanes and helping other people build airplanes, which I think is what it's all about and one of the neatest aspects of what I do. Okay. Ken, let's shift gears a little bit and, and talk with you for a minute. Now, how did you get involved in, in aviation? I have always been uh, an aviation enthusiast, you know, even from a kid, you know, uh, building the model airplanes. And, and uh, I grew up in Cleveland, and we live close to Cleveland Hopkins Airport. So every day I go out and watch the airliners fly over, and it's just always been in my blood, I guess. But uh, I actually went to school and uh, got a degree in aeronautical engineering. And uh, I've been retired now for 12 years, but I, I spent 40 years in the industry as a uh, structural design engineer. Can, oh. you, can you please tell the story about going to the air races and seeing the Mustang fly for the first time? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Please. That's one of my favorite stories. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a... Uh, this, this is, you're getting into psychology here, but <laughs> honestly, sometimes a psychologist will ask a client, what is your earliest childhood memory? And, uh, and it can frequently unlock things from your past that are affecting your, your, you know, your current state. So in my case, my earliest childhood memory was me sitting at our kitchen table. I was not even three years old, but I was drawing a picture of a P-51 Mustang, or trying as well as you can when you're not even three years old, uh, on, on a piece of paper. And that's my earliest childhood memory. And the, uh, the funny thing about it is I can tell you the date. It was May 5th, 1949. And I can tell you the airplane that I was drawing. And it was a, a P-51C November 4845 November I believe and that's what I was drawing and the reason I remember that is we my parents had taken me to the national air races the Cleveland National Air Races that day and that was one of the popular airplanes flying in that race it was a, a P51 with the name of Begin piloted by Bill Odom, and it, it uh, un unfortunately crashed that day and really ended the national air races in Cleveland. 
But I had seen it once. We were not at the airport watching the races. We were at one of the, the remote pylons that, that circled the Cleveland area. So I saw that airplane once as it went around pylon three, but it made an impression on me because it was rather an unusual configuration for any airplane because it had what looked like tip tanks, which were really tip radiators on the wingtips. But it was a unique shape for the airplane, and I distinctly remember trying to draw an airplane with little globs out on the <laughs> on the wingtips. And and the the funny thing is, uh, if if you believe that this is true, that your earliest the thing you can remember earliest in your life will somehow influence your life. I got my degree from Ohio State University, and I went to work for North American Aviation. And my first job as a designer was sitting on a drafting board drawing North American aviation airplanes. <laughs> wow, that is incredible. I mean, so many people have a story about the. We ask that question almost every episode of what first got you into airplanes. And to have uh, a, such an early memory and like the exact date and aircraft that you were drawing as a kid, uh, and then have it come full circle and go to work at North American drawing airplanes. Uh, yes. When I, was in, uh, when I was in high school, I had a teacher, uh, I would look out the window watching airplanes take off, and I had a teacher that said, you know, pay attention to what I'm doing because nobody's going to pay you to look at airplanes all day. <laughs> and uh, I got a job as an air traffic controller, and uh, I actually sent him a picture on my first day on the job of like, guess what I got a job doing. <laughs> so <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, that's wow. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit about working at North American? What did you? What exactly did you do there, and what, is that, what does that look like? What, like, what does your day-to-day look like there? Yeah, actually, I had sort of a split career at North American. I was there 20 years, and about the first 10, 11, 12 years, I, I worked as a designer, and, and quite a bit of that time was on a drafting board, you know, drawing whatever projects we were working on at the time. And, and toward the end of that period, we, we were part of the transition, as most of the other airframers were, from drafting boards to CAD and so on. So I, I worked through that transition and ended up, you know, at a CAD terminal rather than a drafting board. But uh, the first several years, I was actually at a drafting board, you know, drawing, you know, many of the different projects that we had going at uh, the Columbus, Ohio plant. That's where I worked. Uh, the second half of my career was in master dimensions. I transitioned from uh, design work to master dimensions. And if you don't know what that is, that's the group that controls the shape of the airplane. Uh, we document it. We uh, establish it mathematically and, and give that data to whoever in the factory needs it. So in uh, some, some, um, some plants, they call it the lofting department or numerical design. We called it master dimension. So that's, that's how I finished my time at uh, North American in the master dimensions group. So, Ken, um, we have both you and Esther here today because your paths intersect uh, around these drawings that we're going to discuss a bit from North American. Can you tell us how this all started? What, how did you end up with all of these amazing drawings? Well, yeah, they, they came from the, uh, the engineering vault where they stored all these uh, original engineering drawings uh, in Columbus. And uh, my career at uh, North American ended when basically when the Columbus plant closed uh, in 1988 uh, after uh, we finished our final project, the last airplane that we built, and we didn't build the final 
uh, assembly on that, but that was the B-1. We, we just built about 30% of the airplane. It was final assembled in Palmdale, California, but that was our last big contract at Columbus. And when that ended and we built Shipset 100, they basically began to close the doors on the Columbus Division of North American Aviation. And they had this engineering vault full of drawings, and they weren't just the drawings that had been made in Columbus. For some reason, and, and Esther and I have debated on this for some time, uh, how they got there, but a number of the uh, engineering drawings from the uh, what had been the main plant of North American Aviation in the Los Angeles area uh, had ended up in the Columbus vault and were not really sure, I'm not really sure how that happened. I know um, in the early days of Columbus, uh, North American moved into the Columbus plant in 1950. Uh, they did some spares work for P-51s and D-25s and stuff, and there's various reasons they may have ended up there, but nobody really knows for sure. But um, when the plant closed, they, they had to basically empty the whole plant, and that included the engineering vault. and the. The, the engineering drawings for newer aircraft uh, were saved and sent to the Los Angeles Division, which was still running. And the, these older airplanes, World War II vintage, some of them pre-World War II even, um, they realized that uh, most of these, and I, I think they believed all of them had been microfilmed. It, it wasn't the case. They were not all microfilmed, but they reason that since they're uh, microfilmed, we don't really need to save them, and they intended to burn these drawings. So uh, when I heard that, I, I realized, you know, you may not need them to build airplanes, but there's certainly some historical significance to these drawings, and we really ought to try to save them. So I, I talked to everybody I could and, and even wrote an official letter to the person who is in charge of making these decisions is what gets saved and what gets burned. And, you know, I explained I would, I would certainly like to take all these old World War II drawings and, and just make them available to historians or enthusiasts or restorers or whatever. Uh, and I would do this, uh, I would, if I was allowed to, I would take these away at no cost to the company, and it seemed like a really good uh, argument on my part, but it, it was emphatically denied. And then they said, no, our plan is to burn these things. And, and just to interject, uh, Esther, with your background in, um, in historical preservation, uh, that is common practice, right, when you digitize a primary source document to then burn the original? I mean, I don't think I'd go that far. <laughs> but I will say that um, purging of archives is a pretty common thing. I mean, even in a museum setting, you can't keep everything. Mm -hmm. um, and especially in a more corporate engineering vault situation, you definitely can't keep everything. There's just not enough space. So mm. um, I would definitely not be surprised that this story is kind of common a lot for a lot of manufacturers of that time period, um, whether they got sold or um, just closed their doors, which is a kind of a sad fact. But yeah, yeah. Now, I did talk to um, one of my uh, corresponding people at uh, the Los Angeles division of North American, and and he indicated that yes, that was common practice among airframers. That probably back in the 1970s, in fact, they had gone through and purged their vaults and, and, and burned all of those drawings. I, I'm sure some have survived, but I, that, it seems to be the case. that The 70s were such a great time, right? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect decision. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, and it's so, 
I think not even just the archives. I think you look back at um, different time periods where we threw whole airplanes away. Um, you know, after World War II, airplanes that didn't really find a role, you know, got cut up. I mean, look at, uh, you know, what, B-24 Liberators, the, the, arguably the most produced airplane during World War II, and there's just a handful left. There's only two that fly. Um, so, I mean, it's no shock. Yeah, it's no shock that well, that's a, well, that's a great example because the information available for B-24s is non-existent. Yeah. Um, I'm sure much of that was either thrown away or incinerated. I mean, there's plenty of stories about people going dumpster diving when people closed their doors and pulling out anything that they could save. And that's how, in many instances, we end up with the information that we have today because somebody went dumpster diving. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And same with the aircraft. I mean, it was people that had foresight, like Ed Maloney and people like that, that were, you know, pulling airplanes home and saving warbirds before it was cool. You know, uh, a friend of mine uh, was a, uh, in a TBM Avenger uh, unit during uh, the era, that time frame right after World War II, and they still had hand-me-down Avengers that had flown through the war, and they were kind of war-weary and beat up. And he said that one day they brought six brand-new TBMs in, and all the pilots in the squadron were excited, and they were trying to figure out who was going to get to to fly these new ones and what they were going to do with the old ones. And they said the next day, the people, the pilots who brought in these Avengers, uh, got in, taxied them with their wings folded across the street, and they scrapped them right across the street. They were brand new, and he said, but they were part of a contract that technically the Grumman wasn't going to get paid for. The war ended; they didn't want them, and they taxied them across the street and scrapped them. And you know, he said the Navy guys in our squadron were all mad because they're still flying hand-me-down, wore-out <laughs> Avengers, and here's brand new ones that they're going to cut up. But you know, it's 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 wild. And if it hadn't been for certain people stepping in, these items might be lost. And Ken, uh, fate would would put you in that driver's seat at some point. Yes. Uh, to continue the the story, um, after I was denied permission to to try to save these drawings. Uh, from the fires, uh, I was a little bit discouraged, and I, I just kind of sat there and waited as they continued to empty the engineering vault and store all these drawings in a, a couple holding areas uh, in preparation for burning them. And uh, then what I call a minor miracle uh, occurred. It wasn't the parting of the Red Sea, but close. <laughs> uh, the area where they were storing these drawings prior to being burned had a uh, a big water main that ran, I must have been under the floor, I believe, but the, the water main took that occasion to burst. And it filled these rooms, like it looks like, to the ceiling with water. And all the drawings that they were intending to burn were just a, a big pile of wet gunk, you know. And uh, they could not burn them, you know, they, they, they wouldn't burn. And they, they let them sit there trying to figure out what to do with them for about three, no, about two weeks, I guess. Uh, they, they shoveled them into a pile on the shop floor. And finally, after about two weeks, I got the call that I wish I had gotten you know, a month earlier. But they said, hey, Ken, if you want these drawings, you can take them. They had only uh, one caveat. They said, if you ever decide to dispose of these yourself, Make sure we don't see them blowing around a landfill someplace. You know, dispose of them discreetly, you know, I guess for the sake of the company name. And uh, I said, great, I can do that. 
So I, I rented a truck and rented a guy to help me, and, and we went into the plant. And by that time, they, they had put all the drawings into five dumpsters. And in addition, there were some um, what they called non-current drawings. These wet ones were real production drawings that had been used to build the airplanes. And they had some other non-current drawings that were in a dry area that were crated up that they did not get wet, but uh, these weren't the production drawings. So, uh, But I, I, I was able to take all of them. And we loaded all these things into a truck, and I, I took them to a barn that was actually a, on our church property, and they told me, hey, you can use this barn if you want. So uh, unloaded all this slop and stuff into the barn and began the process of sorting and unrolling and trying to dry out all these wet drawings, uh, which I did within uh, a few months, really, a couple months. And dried them out and, and reboxed them up and, and really had have been storing them ever since up until thirty one years. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's incredible. How how would you dry them out? Like what, what process would, would you use? I would roll them out. That was it. I I didn't have any drying equipment or fans or anything of that sort. I'd just roll them out wherever I could, uh, even uh, on, the, on a sunny day, I'd roll them out on the, the grass next to the barn. Uh, I took some of them to my home, in fact, because I was running out of room in the barn to roll these things out even. I took some home and rolled them out in our garage and wherever I could, you know. Now, when you talk about rolling them out, how big are these drawings physically? Well, they, they, they range from the A size to the, the, to the giant rolled uh, J size, which are like 36-inch 36, 36 by any length. I, I'm not sure. There's 35, 40 feet yeah. in some cases. Yeah. yeah. Big, long thing. So any, anywhere from little, you know, uh, eight, and a, half eight by and a half by 11 size to these giant rolls. So. Well, and as you were going through it, did you start looking at like what it is? Like, oh my gosh, this is for rudder pedals for a T6 or something like that. Yes, I did. I, I, I was looking for what I considered the good drawings, you know, the uh, uh, the top drawings, the three views, you know, like the like the top three view drawing uh, for the P51 Mustang, for instance. To me, that was one of the the best drawings in the whole group. The the top three view drawing for the P51D. But but there were a lot of other interesting ones, like the markings drawing, the top three view drawing for the, the markings of the B-25, for instance, and et cetera, et cetera. Any of them that, that had a picture of an airplane or even something recognizable or cool, whatever, I, I tried to sort those out and, and take special care of those. And those are the ones that um, I ended up storing in my home. Uh, the rest of them I, I boxed up and stored in a, just a... Uh, public storage rental place um, and uh, actually when I took a later job in Cincinnati I ended up moving the drawings from my home to my new home and the ones that were in the storage place I moved to my hangar which was in a local county airport so I stored them there then for a number of years so that's that's where they remained for quite a while. And how did you decide to do something with them? How, how does how does Aircor and Esther get that call from Ken that says I should do something with these drawings? Well, I I, I knew I had to do something with them, and I, I I honestly thought that that they would be of value to the restoring community in particular. And then I heard, well, they're all they, the restorers have access to the microfilms, 
which I didn't realize at the time. And I said, all right, well, maybe the restorers don't need these things. <laughs> you know, and I kind of went back and forth, and, and I was kind of learning. You know, I, I, I really hadn't paid a whole lot of attention to the restoration community and so on. Uh, but, but I knew they ought to at least have some value as, like, historical documents. And, and some of them, I really believe, have value as just aviation art. I mean, some of these uh, uh, perspective drawings and so on are, are really beautiful, in my eyes at least, all right? I you think know. everyone would agree with you. Yeah. yeah, even as a non-aviation enthusiast, people generally see the value. But, I mean, really what happened was I cold-called Ken. Um, <laughs> <laughs> somebody told me about him, um, a gentleman that works at the Tri-State Warbird Museum in Batavia, Ohio, uh, we were talking, and he said this gentleman came into the museum and gave a presentation and had some original North American drawings. You might be interested in talking to him. So he gave me his contact information, and I called Ken, and I think we ended up spending over an hour on the phone. The first time we ever talked, getting really nerdy, talking about <laughs> North American part numbering systems and <laughs> things that I was really excited to talk to somebody else about who was really knowledgeable. And obviously, Ken had firsthand information working in North American, which was really fascinating for me. And um, it kind of grew from there. Uh, we, I mean, the work that I do with library means that I talk to a lot of people from all over the country and sometimes all over the world who have technical information that they're interested in sharing. And like anything, most people think what they have is incredibly valuable, even if it's a manual um, or some kind of a document that was widely published and is available in a lot of areas. But so I'm usually slightly skeptical when I chat with people about what they have. And I didn't think that Ken was, you know, out of left field when he told me that he had a bunch of original North American drawings. But everyone's definition of what an original drawing up until this point was microfilm. I mean, technically microfilm did come out of the factories, but they were also just photographs of the original that were distributed. And so when people print those out for microfilm, they were calling them originals. Um, and in my mind, I thought maybe that's what Ken had. And then he sent me 14 sample drawings. He was gracious enough to just pop them in the mail that kind of ran the gamut of the condition that the drawings were in, some of which had gotten wet, some of which haven't, which didn't. And um, when I opened the tube, I immediately knew that, I guess Ken was the real deal. I guess that's how you would put that. <laughs> um, because it was, I mean, they were the pencil on vellum, hand-drawn originals, and I was pretty blown away um, when I opened that tube initially. And so, Myself and Eric Hokuff, our general manager, flew out to Ken's um, place and wanted to see more of what he had. And yeah, we started, we went over to his hangar and started opening things up and pulling out these drawings that were just, yeah, they were incredible. Um, things that were both production drawings that we'd seen before on microfilm and things that had clearly never been microfilm, so no one outside of North American had ever seen them before, um, which was a, a pretty incredible experience. Ken, did you, um, in the you know, in the process of, of drawing everything out and obviously going through all the damage, um, how much information was lost, or were you able to save pretty much all of it? Uh, 
I was able to say pretty much all of it. The, the, big, uh, the big demarcation, I guess, came with the type of media that the drawings happened to be on. And the, the, uh, the pencil on vellum, which was the vast majority, they really fared fairly well through the, through the flood, you know, through the water, even sitting there a couple weeks wet. And uh, they had gotten some mud on them. That's why I assumed that the water main that broke was under the ground or under the floor because there was a lot of mud on some of these drawings, you know, depending on where they had set. But uh, uh, besides those, there were some drawings that were, we called them silk drawings in the business, but they, it was really like a starched linen uh, that the, was the drawing media, and then usually they'd, they'd put ink on, on these starched linens, and they did not fare well at all. You know, sitting there for two weeks, they molded and, and pretty much just disintegrated. So they did not make it. And also there were some drawings that uh, were photocopies. Um, I, um, I think the, the material was very similar to like a negative or something. It was uh, like an emulsion or like an emulsion on some kind of celluloid. They looked like uh, sepia positives to look mm. at them, but they were some kind of emulsion on, on the celluloid. And it appears the emulsion was uh, water soluble because mm. those things just kind of washed away and, and a lot of those were lost but but the, that was a, a that was a, a small amount most of them were on the the uh, pencil on vellum do you have any clues about what we did lose and and uh what um you know if, if there's anything significant there uh well no probably not no as far as uh, as far as what was lost from the, from the flood now uh, you need to know that the uh the drawings that were stored at columbus were just partial aircraft you know, as far as I know, there was no single aircraft that was completely covered by the, the drawings that were there. So mm -hmm. we started with incomplete aircraft, and yes, some of those were lost, and I tried to minimize those. But uh, yeah, there's, there's no one full airplane that we have the drawings for. So how does the process work? So you, um, at some point, they're going to get moved, uh, or they, they were moved to Bemidji, correct? Correct. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, you had to like, didn't you guys have to buy like a whole other building or build another building or something? Well, we rented a building initially. Yeah, so um, in December of 2019, Ken transferred ownership of all of what he had to us, and we flew down there and rented a 26 foot truck and loaded everything <laughs> into that truck um, and drove it back to Bemidji. And yeah, we just rented. A, a new building um, specifically for the purpose of storing the drawings um, temporarily and so that I would have a place to organize them. Obviously, our shop was not the place to do that. Most restoration shops, if you've ever been to one, are packed floor to ceiling with parts and airplanes, and that's exactly how ours was. Um, and I needed a pretty substantial amount of space to start really unpacking um, and organizing and seeing exactly what was there. So that's where the drawings have been from December of 2019 through now. And last year, Air Corps bought an additional building in Bemidji, and we moved all of our restoration work there. And our original building is now just fabrication. But we have a dedicated space in that new building um, that is going to be specifically for an archive and to store Ken's drawings in long term. And also to create a little research area 
um, next to that so that people can come and utilize the information once it all gets put away and we can find it all and tell people exactly what's there and what's not. And you check to make sure that there is not a poorly maintained water main under this building. Right. Actually, we routed all the water mains under that room. <laughs> so we're kind of winding down here in the podcast, but I kind of wanted to link it back to uh, link the um, the drawings back to the work that you're doing at uh, at Aircore. Are there any restorations that you're currently working on right now that have been enhanced already by the by the drawings you picked up, um, you know, three years ago now? Um, yeah, it's been a little bit slow going because really, so th- the estimate that I have is that we have approximately 50,000 drawings. Um, so the cataloging process has been kind of slow and steady. So I think once I'm able to get them fully cataloged, we're going to be able to start using utilizing them a lot more. But there has already been several instances where um, one of the guys in the shop who's looking for a drawing or a part number is listed on a drawing but that part number wasn't included on the microfilm and a lot of times I've been able to go out and find that drawing in Ken's collection if it's part of the stuff that I've already kind of started to go through Um, so yeah as the process continues we're just going to be able to find more and more of those things and there's been a couple of really neat stories about people outside of air horror that have called me with questions and things that I've been able to answer for them by just finding the one piece of paper that answers every question that they had, which is pretty neat. So I've got to ask both of you, do you have one favorite drawing in that whole collection? Do you guys have, do you guys have a favorite between, or, you know, each of you have a favorite? I will answer that first. Yeah. I, I had a favorite and it was, uh, a B-25 drawing, and it was, the, uh, it was a perspective and a nicely shaded artistic perspective of the uh, um, eight-gun nose installation on the uh, B-25. I forget, that appeared, I guess, on a couple different models, perhaps, but the, the eight-gun nose in perspective with the... Uh, the uh, the column or the the nose doors opened up, showing the machine guns and the belts of bullets, each one shaded beautifully, <laughs> you know, in perspective. And to me, that was my favorite. And in fact, that's one that I had framed and it was hanging in my man cave at home for a number of years. And and that's at Air Corps Aviation right, now, now. Also, it hangs up in this temporary archive. Yep. <laughs> so that yes, that is my favorite. Right. And honestly, I don't really, I, mean, I don't know if I can pick a favorite, but, well, I, I guess my favorite illustration of what the collection means to the restoration community is actually one that I'll be showing at the presentation this evening, and it's um, of the P-51D throttle quadrant. And the reason why I love it so much, it's one of the original sample drawings that Ken sent to me and the equivalent image on microfilm is like a very good standard of what were the frustrations that we had prior dealt with with microfilm the image was really darkened a lot of the stuff in the title block and the bill of materials was illegible and there's nothing you can do about that when you're looking at a drawing on microfilm that's just what it is and you have to accept it and When I unrolled those initial 14 drawings, I pulled that drawing out of the tube that Ken had sent me. And I, I, not an exaggeration, I almost cried 
because I knew what we had been dealing with before. And here I was looking at the original of that crystal clear, every detail visible. And that was sort of like the moment where I was like, this is what this means to us. Like, we'll never, I mean, if we have an original, we'll never have to question, you know, what, is this an eight or is this a six or things like that. And I, I think that that's probably the best example of what it means as a whole. What I love about about this story is to me it, 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 it's, it's similar on your side of it to the folks who saved airplanes at places you know when it, before it was cool I mean like, like I said like Planes of Fame the Air Force Museum uh, you know you talk about uh, um, old Rhinebeck and, and places like that I really think going forward uh, we're very lucky uh, that you did what you did to save a huge piece of history and uh, I think it's going to be amazing to have that archive, and it's also going to be reflected in the aircraft restorations that take to the skies or take to our museums uh, that, to be thankful for what you did. Yeah. yeah. And Esther, what I love about your side of this story is that it celebrates research and intelligence. It's, it, re, it really does celebrate that, you know, you could look at a drawing and say, okay, great, but it's not until that research and that uh, technical side comes in. It's like, here's why this is so important for us to save and, and preserve for future generations. And that's what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we really just want to continue, in many ways, Ken's legacy. I mean, he did what he did for 30 years, and we want to do that same thing for the next 30-plus years, um, which is a good feeling. It's a good feeling. Absolutely, absolutely. It is an absolute honor uh, to have you both here and and, and excited to hear uh, y'all talk tonight. You guys are here in town uh, while we're recording this because you're part of the speaker series. You're going to speak in the museum tonight. And uh, just want to say thank you guys uh, for being here. Tom, do you have any final thoughts? Do you want to run by them? Well, yeah. I, um, I mean, as you were saying, Chris, I mean, you know, we always talk about the airplanes and, pre- and preserving and, 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 and uh, restoring the airplanes, but that's not possible without the technical background uh, to keep these aircraft operating because, you know, when you need to create new parts or, um, and especially to the, to the quality of restoration that Air Corps is doing, you know, where, where, you know, it's really important to get every last detail correct. Um, this kind of stuff is essential. What I, I always um, love the story that we have from our, our restoration hangar when we were doing uh, the, the reskinning of our Ford Trimotor. So this is a Chris. It's a what? Nineteen twenty-seven airplane, I believe. Uh, Twenty-nine. Twenty-nine. Okay, so it'll be a hundred years old in another couple yeah. years, and uh, and when they did the reskin, I mean, it was like. It was like looking at the pyramids and trying to figure out how they built them, because there's no. I mean, there, there are. There's nobody left alive who built it. Uh, there's. We have some drawings, but not the technical of like, okay, here's how you get a bucking bar into this particular area or something like that, um, where you know we really had to do a lot of filling in the blanks. One of my favorite stories uh, when you talked about bucking bar, you should, uh, reminded me when they were restoring uh, Glacier Girl, the P thirty eight. They couldn't figure out how they got a bucking bar down into the point where the uh, um, basically where the tail booms come down into the verticals and uh, a Rosie the Riveter came in and basically said you're gonna have a hard time making those and they said yeah we're trying to figure that out and she says well here you're gonna need my bucking bar and she brought the bucking bar that was specially made <laughs> to fit in down into that structure and actually uh, buck the rivets down into the point uh, it, it was pretty neat uh, that's how they 
were able to do the uh, finish the tales on Glacier Girl. <laughs> well, it just goes to show you, just you know, the, the knowledge is out there, and it's it is the challenge of the of the of the restoration world and of the museum world uh, to archive it and and put it in one place. And you know, Chris, that's that's a ton of what you're doing with the uh, with 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 our oral history series and the and timeless voices and even things like this podcast. You know, with uh, with many of the people we've brought through. So, um, Esther, Ken, thank you so much for uh, for joining us and also for uh, for coming for the EA's Museum Speaker Series. Um, for those of you listening, uh, unless you have a time machine, you're too late tonight. For uh, <laughs> if you're too late to catch it tonight, um, but we uh, we we do uh, post the the uh, schedule on our website. Uh, and if you are in the Oshkosh area, we do these. Um, what is it, Chris? The uh, is it the fourth Thursday? It's usually the third Thursday. We said to move this month, okay. but uh, yeah, usually the third Thursday of every month, except for July, because we have that thing. Yeah, so. we do have that thing. <laughs> yep. But uh, but it is uh, it, it, yeah, it is it is a, a monthly series that we do here at the museum. If you're in the Oshkosh area, or if you'd like an excuse to come up to the Oshkosh area, um, come on up and, uh, and and we have some really great speakers every month, many of whom have been on the podcast as well. Um, so, uh, with that, I, I do want to also just make a couple of acknowledgments uh, as we uh, as we continue to move the podcast forward. Chris has been doing a lot of the scheduling for us and scheduled this podcast. Uh, Rob Molash is running our board right now, uh, in between Chris and I, and keeping us on time with everything. Uh, and Scott Geezy is uh, doing a lot of the uh, the back end production work uh, for the podcast. And also have to acknowledge um, our, our entire produ- um, uh, publications team, Hal and uh, and Jim, and those guys, and uh, and our um, our social media group for uh, for keeping everything running here um so um we're continuing to work on the podcast keep the reviews coming you know tell us what you'd like to see on here what you'd like to have us do differently or uh or just tell us uh, that we're doing a good job we always like to hear that too um and uh and keep listening so with that uh we'll um we'll look look forward to uh tonight's uh series and speaker series and uh, we'll see you next time on the podcast when you're cleared to land on the green dot.